I don't know if you had this experience, but um, maybe when you were younger, or maybe it happens to you now, um, someone will, and something will trigger you to start thinking about your vocation, your life. What is it that you're meant to do with your life? Um, it happens at all different stages. We've had two children just fairly recently go through high school, and you finish year 12, and all they get asked by everyone is, what are you going to do next year? Have you thought about what you're going to do? Blah, blah. You know, that's the relentless thing. And, and, and you know what I wanted to say? I mean, I was pretty simple. I just, you know, do whatever you like, really, you know. Um, uh, it, you, you can't tell at age 18 what you're going to do for the rest of your life. I mean, some people sort of can, but generally not. But what I did want to say to them is that question really doesn't go away, <laughs> does it? I mean, how many of us are still trying to figure out what we're going to do when we grow up? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a few of us like, okay, so I did this and I did that and now I'm doing this and what should I do? What should I do? Maybe I'm, you know. Uh, so it, ne it never goes away. And then if you're a person of faith, there's, there's a layer that you add on to that, not just what should I do with my life, but do you think that God has a particular view on what you should do with your life? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? And uh, the good news is this morning, in the next 20 minutes, I'm going to tell you with great clarity exactly what God's plan is for your life and how you're to go about fulfilling it. And then all your problems will be solved. Isn't that great? Aren't you glad you came? Yeah, do you believe that? <laughs> yes and no. Yeah, thanks, Jen. Yes and no. Well, so here's the thing. Uh, we're going to look at, from this passage in Corinthians, which is a little tricky to get your head around at one level, uh, we're going to look at what Paul's mission was. What was Paul doing with his life? And, and therefore, what, do, what does God want us to do with our lives? We're going to look at um, the challenges of doing that, and we're going to look at the power that comes to enable us to do that, the results uh, that flow from that. So what is Paul's job? So here's the context. Paul is in a bit of conflict with members of the Church of Corinth. We've looked over the last two weeks at the topic last week of forgiveness and uh, the week before, how you deal with broken relationships. Uh, worth having a listen to online. You can find them on our website, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere where you get Spotify and so on. Um, worth having a listen to, I think, and certainly worth reading the early chapters of the, this letter of 2 Corinthians. Um, now he's explaining in these few verses a bit of why he didn't go to visit them. The conflict that he had with them was largely around changed plans to go and visit the Corinthians. So these first few verses, he uh, talks about that. And then he, then he does a gear change. And you might go, what the heck's going on there? And, and we don't really know. He just seems to, he's done a gear change. And then he just bursts into this sort of hymn of praise to God. And it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting hymn. And when we understand what's going on here, we'll understand Paul's plan for his life and God's plan for your life. Okay, so let's go. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And you go, what does that mean? And he uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Well, what, what, what's going on there? Here's the background. In uh, the Roman Empire, when this letter was written, 
what would happen was a general would lead a Roman army off on a campaign to conquer another country, put down a pesky insurrection, and uh, once they'd conquered the, the other country or the tribe or the insurrection, the Roman general would return to Rome and uh, he'd have like a ticker tape parade. You know, like have ticker tape parades when you're conquering Olympians, return, you know, uh, everyone gathers around and cheers and woohoo. So this was going on there. And what would happen was the general would proceed, all of the citizens of Rome would, would be around him, and, and behind him would be all the captives, well, not all, but the high status captives of the, uh, the, the kings and the rulers of the tribe or the people group or the insurrectionists that he had conquered. So they'd be led behind the conquering general, and he would move up to, uh, to the center of Rome, to the Caesar, and there would be a great celebration. And as he moved forward, people would be throwing out petals and fragrances to fill the air around this procession uh, with beautiful smells. They would also do that because in the Roman world, uh, incense and aroma and smells and smoke was associated with religious rituals. So not only because what was going on was the general was returning to receive the accolades of the Roman population and government, but also Caesar in the day represented God. So there was also a religious element to this, that the, the Romans were all acknowledging the God of Rome who had granted them victory over their enemies. So there's this triumphal procession, Roman general, beautiful smells everywhere, and uh, coming to thank God, and the captives are behind them, and it's a great day for everyone, except the captives, because you know what happened to them at the end of the procession. <coughs> they all got killed. So they would be violently and brutally put to death. So, uh, here we go. Paul takes this metaphor, and he plays with it. He's a very, very clever author, and this text is fantastic. So this is what he says. He says, thanks be to God, who leads us, us followers of Jesus, as captives, same language, in Christ's triumphal procession. That is a technical phrase referring to this Roman procession. And he's saying that I am a captive to King Jesus. He's come into the world. He's conquered the world. Uh, he's, he's put an end to all God's enemies. He's captured me and he's bringing me home to God, receiving the accolades of all the watching principalities and powers. And uh, that's amazing, right? I mean, back up right there and say... Um, Is it amazing? <laughs> you see, one of the main reasons, I had this, I've had a few discussions over the last week or two with people who are wondering, they're new to the faith, and, and I had this conversation 10 days ago with someone who's kind of, God has really opened their lives to, to himself in an amazing way, and they're so excited to become a follower of Jesus, and it's all sort of fallen into place for them. And, and we sat across at a coffee shop on Darling Street, and they just said to me, it's so wonderful. Why doesn't everyone uh, become a Christian and follow Jesus? And I said, I know it's, it's such incredibly good news, isn't it? I don't know why everyone doesn't. Well, actually, I do. 
Because following Jesus means giving up being in charge of my own life. It means surrender. It means giving up the illusion or the delusion that I'm, I'm God. It means acknowledging that I'm not in control. It means allowing myself to, to be put in this triumphal procession of Christ as his captive, as his slave, as someone belongs to him. And you know what? Mostly, I prefer being my own God. And you prefer being your own God. And we prefer, like it's not comfortable. And, and you know what? There's an element in which that's understandable because <laughs> though your average person in Roselle wouldn't know this, it didn't end so well for the captives of the Romans, did it? So there's this deep fear in us, this primal fear that if I give up control and surrender my life to a being other than myself, it's not going to end well for me. In fact, if I let God be God, I'm actually going to be miserable. I, that's our fear. Because, because, you know, in all sorts of ways, we're let down by authority figures. Our experience of our own earthly fathers and mothers is not perfect. No one's ever loved us perfectly. No one's ever completely taken care of our needs. So we learn from a very young age that we need to look after ourselves. And then, of course, along comes Christianity, and you say to someone, hey, surrender to God, and you go, are you kidding me? <laughs> Here's the interesting thing about this metaphor that Paul uses, right? Uh, this same language of procession uh, is used of Jesus. And Jesus had his very own procession where he was led like a captive. Well, initially, he was welcomed like a king. And then he was led like a captive. Can you... We're heading into Easter. Can you think of Jesus? What was Jesus' procession? Palm Sunday. Jesus comes riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Uh, public service announcement. Palm Sunday this year, as we celebrate it here, is going to be like no other Palm Sunday you've experienced. <laughs> we have a live donkey coming for the kids Paul, you can talk to Paul about it. He's very excited and has organized the donkey. So we're going to have a donkey, and it's going to be very, very exciting, and palms, and, uh, and a triumphal procession. And um, that was Jesus' triumphal procession. But at the end of the, the triumphal procession on Palm Sunday, where did, where did Jesus' procession end? There was another procession that he went on, wasn't there? And that ended up with him dying on the cross. Okay, so what Paul does in his letters is he weaves those two metaphors together. So here's the reason you and I are happy to be captives to King Jesus in his triumphal procession, because we know that, that being a captive in his triumphal procession will not lead to our death because Jesus, our King, has already died for us at the end of his triumphal procession. 
He died. He's been the captive. He's processed. He's died in our place. And by his death, he's actually defeated all the things that hold us captive. Now he brings us into his uh, retinue of, uh, of slaves and of captives. But he's never going to kill us because he's already paid the price. He's already died. So we can be glad to follow him. We can be glad to be his captives. Okay, so you go, great. But then, then Paul picks, uses this metaphor again, and he says, well, uh, not just are we captives, but even in that place of being a captive of the crucified Messiah, a place of zero status in Rome, a place of utter insignificance culturally, he says he has a job. And look at what the job is. Uh, and he again, he uses the metaphor of this procession. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. For we are to those the pleasing aroma of Christ, as God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. So he takes a Roman procession. There were people going around the procession with incense. I was going to bring incense here, but I thought some people might not like it. And lovely perfume and smells and rose petals to make it all beautiful. So Paul now says not only is he a captive, but he's also actually the aroma. What does God use him to do? God uses him in his captivity, in his low status, to spread the knowledge of God everywhere. That's Paul's task. Guess what? Do you want to know what God wants to do with your life? God wants to use you, and he wants to use me to spread the aroma of the knowledge of himself everywhere. He wants us to be women and men and kids who by our living and our speaking just permeate the culture and the knowledge of God just kind of is spread around everywhere. That's what fragrances do. They're pretty amazing. Um, they just get everywhere. Uh, have any of you ever smelt the smell of a skunk? Okay, now this works better. This story works better in Canada where we have lots of skunks. Um, You'd often get our, our dog, Chimmy, uh, we, we had her in Canada, was skunked. So skunks are out in the morning. Uh, Freya let Chimmy out the back door. Fre Chimmy goes into the backyard. There's a skunk there. She chases the skunk because Chimmy is pretty dumb. Um, the skunk sprays Chimmy. So there's now this oily uh, spray on Chimmy's face. She comes howling back to the door. Freya opens the door, lets the dog into the house. The dog does one lap downstairs before I catch her and throw her back outside. Because if you've ever smelt the smell of a skunk, it stinks. It's like burning rubber. It's, it's an indescribable stench. Here's the thing. She was in the house for about 30 seconds. And uh, we had to... The whole house stank. We had a cupboard downstairs in the front next to the door where all you, you'd hang your coats in when you came in from freezing to death. And um, that cupboard was closed. Three months later, the coats in the cupboard still smelt of skunk because the aroma, the little molecules of stinking skunk 
sent get everywhere and they stick on everything. It was extraordinary. You can't go to work after your dog's been skunked because you stink. Your clothes stink. The dog stinks. You get the picture. That's what smells do. They just get everywhere. Now, they can be beautiful smells. How many of you have a favorite perfume that is like, you just go, it's a, you put that perfume on, yeah, and it's evocative, and you go, that's it, right? And it's like, okay. Um, smells are powerful, for good or for ill. Here's another fact. Um, smelling the shirt or the clothing of your partner lowers your stress level and releases uh, happy hormones. So if you're stressed and miserable at work, take your partner's <laughs> shirt and have it. No, don't do that. That's a little weird. Um, but, but smells permeate, get everywhere. You know what God says he wants you and me to do? He wants us to be like little molecules carrying the aroma of God into the world. Not just here. I mean, this is like the perfume factory. It's great. Or the skunk breeding ground. <laughs> Let's go with perfume factory. But it doesn't, the perfume, the aroma is no use if it stays in the bottle. It's actually got to get out and spread. So God's task for you and for me is to spread the knowledge of him in our workplaces, in our communities, in our political system, in our economic structures, in our unions, in our schools, in our universities. And, uh, and that's God's plan for you, <laughs> to know him and to make him known, to, to be full of God so that others can get to know God. And, uh, and that's it. Now, now, along the way, God will use, you know, you, you might be like Paul, who not long after writing this letter was a literal captive in jail and got executed. So Superlo stated he had no great career. Okay, mostly when we're asking God, what should I do with my life? We're saying, how can I have a meaningful, fulfilling, well-remunerated, high-status career? That's what we're asking. Let's be honest. Uh, I want to be emotionally fulfilled. I want to be well-paid. I want to be well-thought of. Um, I don't think those are God's values for us, really. I don't think he really has a particular view for most of us about what we actually do with our careers. You see, the most influential uh, follower of Jesus in the world was the Apostle Paul, who had no career apart from being a captive of Christ, living in poverty at times, living in wealth at other times, uh, and literally being imprisoned and dying for Jesus. Low status, no superannuation, no harbor views, no promotions, no status, no nothing. That's, and I think that was God's job for him. I find that incredibly liberating. And also slightly terrifying. But liberating. No matter what our situation in life, God's plan is to use us to spread his, the knowledge of himself in the world. Isn't that exciting? Well, uh, 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 look what Paul says. And who is equal to such a task? Don't you feel that? Like, 
yeah, who, who could actually do that? Just let me have a nice career, thank you very much, God, and come to church on a Sunday and put a bit of money in the plate or by direct debit and uh, volunteer and, and, and then let me, let me do that. That I can manage. But this business of day-to-day in my life, in my workplace, in my culture, being the aroma of Christ, uh, taking the knowledge of God into the world and the culture, like who's equal to that? So I'll, I'll tell you some reasons I think I'm not equal to that. You, you could probably come up with many more reasons why I'm, not, why I'm not equal to that task. One, I'm a mess. <laughs> like, I, like, if you really get to know me, I'm a mess. I'm a mess of mixed motives and selfishness and laziness and brokenness and trauma. Um, I'm full of doubts, aren't you? Aren't there times when you just go, geez, this whole Christianity business, mate, are you sure about it? Like, don't you ever think to yourself, I don't know that I want to tell anyone else about Jesus because I'm not even sure it's true myself? Maybe you never have those thoughts. I, I don't have them often, no more than five or ten times a day. <laughs> Mostly when I'm talking to other people. They're very normal. It's, quite a, it's actually the pressure intellectually and culturally in our world to, to disbelieve is very great. So, so they're there. And I, I actually think Satan puts those thoughts in our heads to fill us with fear and stop us. So, so I can feel very inadequate. I can, um, I can feel inadequate to the task because I think no one's going to want to know God. <laughs> I mean, their lives are so much better than mine. Are you kidding me? What have I got to offer them? What have we got to offer them? And the thing that's peculiar to me at times is I can feel like I'm just trying to build a church to build my own ego by telling people about God. And so my motives are mixed. And then like Paul, you go, and I love it, that the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian, the guy who kind of wrote most of the New Testament, he had it all together. The Apostle Paul goes, who's equal to the task? Oh. And not only that, I mean, there's all those inner issues, but there's some really, really smart people there who have lots of good arguments. So who's equal to the task? Maybe your faith is only little. Maybe you're just discovering this whole God business. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe you struggle with addiction. Maybe you struggle with mental health issues that are crippling. Maybe your own life is, is really in a bit of free fall and you go, who on earth, how could God use me? Well, he does. He does. It works. This is what Paul says. We're going to jump ahead um, to chapter 3 and uh, we're, we're running out of time. So here he goes. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. I, I find this, and, and this week I have to say, as I was thinking about today, and think, I thought, man, that's it. It's not the great news is spreading the knowledge of God in the world 
We are inadequate. We can't do it. It's our confidence comes from God. He's the one who uses us. He's the one who opens the doors. He's the one who gives us the words to speak. Ah. We have to make ourselves available, but we have to trust him. Anything else is pride. Anything else is pride. The thought that I might be so holy and godly and transcendently spiritually enlightened that people would just look at me and go, Oh, Mark, wow, why are you laughing like that? <laughs> go, Oh, Mark, you look so much like Jesus. I just have to, how can I be like you? I mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's totally nuts. It's totally nuts. The idea that I could that I could have every argument to counter every counter argument against God, that I could live consistently, it's just it's just foolish. Now, look, I want to do the best I can to be a good image of Jesus in the world, man. I want to be as and I want to be, and my particular shtick, I want to have the best philosophical arguments I can and psychological arguments to help people come to Jesus. I like that kind of thinking, and, and I'm reasonably good at it. But none of that will actually change anyone's heart. Only God can do that. And becoming a follower of Jesus, embracing the surrender of giving up being my own God and letting Jesus be my God and be, be a, his captive and slave... Like, that's a spiritual change of heart that I, it is impossible for me to bring about. Only God is competent for that. So, I, I, have you ever, I mean, have you actually ever tried to change anyone? Yeah, yeah and how did that go? Not good. Not good. Like, we can't change basic things about people. I mean, the, the funny thing, it's, this is the funny thing about marriage, isn't it, right? You, you marry someone who's different to you, because you really love their differences, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to change them to make them like you, because their differences drive you nuts. And it doesn't work. You can't change someone. I mean, they have to want to change. I, um, my, uh, my brother was a, an addict. My father was an alcoholic. And I wish, I wish 30 years ago, someone had said to me, Mark, you cannot rescue and you cannot change your dad or your brother. You're not responsible for their addictions, and you can't change them to get them out of their addictions. And I wish I'd found that freedom. It would have saved me an enormous amount of angst and actually quite a substantial amount of money. Changing a heart is God's business. It's not ours. So there's this weird mystery that God wants to use us, but, but he uses us as mixed up, messed up, feeble vessels and he's the one who works through us to change hearts. And this is what Paul says. It actually works. Like this is the genius, right? So Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, back in the day, he was going back to visit. It was very common um, 
because you didn't have Facebook and LinkedIn where you could boast about who you were and how lovely your life was and how confident you were, you got letters from other people to boast about you. So you'd go into a town like Corinth and you'd be a public speaker who was like the, the best show in town or a new preacher and you'd have these letters from people saying, listen to Mark, he's brilliant and give him lots of money. And you'd show those around and everyone would go, oh, Mark's great, and they'd come and listen to you and give you lots of money. That's how it worked. Paul never had letters like that. And the Corinthians, we think, were saying to him, well, look, there are these other preachers who've got these great letters of recommendation, and Paul, you don't have anything. And Paul says, I don't need written letters because you, your changed lives, are the only commendation that I need. Because through Paul and his weakness and their conflict and their mess, the lives of the Corinthians had been changed. You show, verse 3, that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God changes our hearts. And it's a miracle. But he uses us. But he does it. But he uses us. But he does it. But he uses us. So what are we to do? Well, connect with God as deeply as you can and then go out in the world and love people and help them get to know God as best you can and pray like crazy that God will use you. And then leave it up to him. It's, it's not on you to change the world. It's, it's on you to be, be perfume in the world, to spread the knowledge of God as best you can. Speak it out, live it out, share it. Live for Jesus. But in the end, it's God's job to change hearts. Part of how I think church works, by the way, is we are like a we are a perfume factory. <laughs> the other way to say it is is what we want to do here is stir up the pot of perfume so that we smell better so when we go out into the world we're more effective and we smell better for Jesus. That's what church is. Church isn't church isn't the end in itself. Our time now, this is not an end in itself. This is it's a wonderful end at one level of worshiping God, connecting with each other. But it's bigger purpose is to equip us to go out into the world and spread the knowledge of God in the world. That's part of what we're doing here. So, um, and it works. It, it, it actually works. People's lives are changed. We um, had a very dear friend in Canada who died of uh, cancer quite suddenly. She's uh, our age, in her mid-30s. Yeah, I'm lying. Um, she's our age, uh, in her 50s, and suddenly died. And, um, and there are times in my life, many times, where I wonder why I do what I do, and I think I could be doing other things, and I, I think my ministry is very ineffective, and I go, no one really wants to know about Jesus. What the heck's the point? And then I get a message that this friend has died, and I get a message from her husband saying that uh, their time with us and in our small group in Canada years ago was changed everything for them and brought them back to faith. 
And it's that faith that has kept them through the last six months as she's suffered and died. And that's God, right? That's, and I go, yeah, that's why we do what we do. That's why we love people. Because you don't know. We, we just spread the knowledge. We live like we can, best we can, and we pray for people. We, and then years later, you discover that God was at work using you to bring a blessing to someone else. And you go, oh, okay. Uh, just, just keep at it. You just don't know how God's going to use you. Words you say along the way change lives because that's God's job, and that's what he wants you to do. Yeah? Let's pray. Lord, um, use us. Use us to spread everywhere the knowledge of yourself. And um, in our weakness and our doubts and our struggles and our addictions and our hurts and our depressions and our relational strife, just still use us. And, uh, and we leave the results to you because we, we, it's not up to us, it's up to you. And I pray for more and more people to come to know you uh, because it's just, it's life and it's hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing together as we uh, wrap up our time. <laughs>